0: The year was 1987 and a commuter flight took off traveling from Portland, Maine to Boston. It was just a small connector. But right from the go they knew something was not quite right. There was a strange mysterious noise and so as they climbed up to about 4000 feet, the pilot Henry Dempsey gave it over, the controls over to his co-pilot. He says, "I'm going to go check out what this strange noise is." And so he makes his way towards the back of this small aircraft, a 15-passenger turboprop. And just about the time he reached the rear door of the aircraft, they hit an air pocket and the whole plane took a big bump, thrusting him onto the door and very quickly he knew exactly what the strange noise was. The door was not properly latched shut. And so like that, he finds himself catapulting out of the aircraft. Very quickly, the co-pilot realized what was going on as he could feel all of the, the wind and the air blowing throughout the cabin and the light that showed up that the rear door had opened. And he radioed. He said, I need to land as quickly as possible. He said, send a helicopter out over the waters of the ocean where we were just flying and search for the pilot. He's gone out the back. But miraculously, as they landed at the nearest airport, the airport rescue crew was astonished that here was the pilot, Henry Dempsey, hanging on for dear life to the steps, you know those tiny little steps that fold down in that little handle, and for about 10 minutes, he held on with a death grip. 200-mile-an-hour winds, and somehow the position that he was in as they landed, he was staring at that runway just 12 inches away from his face. And so as the rescue crews found him, they tried to pry his hands. It took quite some time to get his fingers loose from his grip. Has your life ever drastically been changed by one unsuspecting moment? It's a strange noise in the back and you go to check it out and before you know it, you're being catapulted, sucked out, if you will. Jesus told us difficult times would come. Matthew 10, he said, and you will be hated by all, by all for my name's sake. But he who endures till the end, will be saved. Maybe you have been in or you find yourself in a very difficult and discouraging time. Maybe you've been tempted to just let go. Forget it. It's not worth it. But when you think of the experience of Henry Dempsey, think of the alternatives. Because this morning, I submit to you, in those challenging moments, in those discouraging moments, hang on to Jesus with all you've got. Never let go, because the harder you cling to Jesus, the tighter his grip will be on you, and that is your only lifeline to get through those challenging times. This morning, I invite you to take your Bibles as we look at a chapter of Jehoshaphat's life. A time when, in just a moment, life became very scary for him. But we're going to look eventually at an instance where he clung to Jesus with everything that he had. We're going to be turning to 2 Chronicles. And we'll probably begin in chapter 17 to get a little bit of context of who Jehoshaphat is. Or was, rather. Rather. We know that his father was King Asa, who was a king of Judah. And he tried his very best to wipe out pagan worship. And later Jehoshaphat followed in his father's footsteps, and he too became the king of Judah. And we first meet him here in 2 Chronicles chapter 17. And in chapter 17, the first six verses, we get a little bit of an introduction. I'm in 2 Chronicles chapter 17. Verse 1, then Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place and strengthened himself against Israel. He placed troops in all the fortified cities of Judah and set garrisons in the land of Judah and in the cities of Ephraim, which Asa, his father, had taken. Verse 3, now the Lord was with Jehoshaphat. Because he walked in the former ways of his father, David. He did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments and not according to the acts of Israel. Therefore, the Lord established the kingdom in his hand. And all Judah gave presents to Jehoshaphat, and he had riches and honor in abundance. And his heart took delight in the ways of the Lord. Moreover, he removed the high places and wooden images from Judah. So you could say he's off to a very good start. He's destroyed the high places and the idols. He's made sure his subjects knew God's laws and commandments. His heart delights to do the ways of God. And he is blessed. But by the time we get to chapter 18, verse 1, we read, Jehoshaphat had riches and honor and abundance, and by marriage... He allied allied himself with Ahab. Now, King Ahab is a bit of a different character. You may remember that he was the one married to Jezebel who tried to legitimize the worship of Baal in Israel, the same King Ahab that Elijah challenged on Mount Carmel. And the story unfolds, and this isn't our focus this morning, but I I encourage you to go home and read chapter 18. It's a fascinating story of how King Ahab wants Jehoshaphat's assistance in battle, and Jehoshaphat, he stands up and he's courageous and he says, is there not a man of the Lord we can inquire of? And this goes back and forth. He doesn't want to ask because he never gets good news, and he finally decides we're going to go anyway And unfortunately, Jehoshaphat fails under the pressure and goes along. And in that decided battle that the Lord said was not according to his plan, King Ahab dies and Jehoshaphat probably should have died, but he cries out to the Lord and in God's mercy, he's spared. By the time we get to chapter 19, we find Jehoshaphat again bringing the people back to the Lord, setting judges in the land, again preaching revival and reformation, if you will. And in chapter 19, all seems to be going well again. Everyone is breathing easy. Things are on the up and up. Life is good. But as many of you well know, The devil was not pleased. There is a great controversy. And so he chose to upset things a bit. And so in this last chapter here that we're going to look at this morning, chapter 20, we come across the story of our focus. It happened after this, this time of peace, this time of prosperity, This time of drawing closer to the Lord. It happened after this that the people of Moab, with the people of Ammon and others with them, besides the Ammonites, came to battle against Jehoshaphat. Verse 2, then some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, from Syria, and they are in hazes is on Tamar, which is in Engedi. gedi Now, Judah has done nothing to provoke this attack. They haven't asked for this. They haven't gone seeking after this. In fact, in days of old, they wanted to wipe them out, and God said, no, leave them alone. They're not our concern. And now they're coming back to wage war. Maybe you can relate. Maybe there's a time in your life when all was well, all was prosperity, all was on the up and up, but in the course of a few minutes, the footman comes with a message, and your world has changed. Maybe it changed by a phone call, a doctor's report, a car accident, a sudden death, a heart attack, a stroke. Whatever it was, it just came barging in like an unwanted guest. But this morning I want to look at some key strategies that we see Jehoshaphat using in his season, his time of tragedy. Here is this great multitude. And what is Jehoshaphat going to do? We find the first key in verse 3 of our story, and Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord. First key. First thing he does, he seeks the Lord and proclaims a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord, and from all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. Notice, when tragedy strikes, immediately he turns to prayer. Often we're tempted to prepare first, get ready, then ask God to bless our efforts. But here we have a beautiful expression of confidence in God and utter self-distrust. distrust As a parenthesis here, tragedy has a way of exposing and magnifying what's already in our hearts. Have you noticed that? If we are close with God, when tragedy strikes, we will be drawn even closer. If we have meaningful devotions with God, they will become our sustenance, our strength. If we have a meaningful prayer life, it will become our lifeline. But if tragedy strikes and we're filled with doubts, those doubts can grow. If we have not made Bible study a habit, at that point it may seem impossible. If we have not made honest, open prayer part of our lives, it will seem like our prayers hit the ceiling. And if destructive behaviors have had a foothold before, Tragedy will only drive us further into despair. Yes, tragedy has an uncanny way of exposing and magnifying what's already there. Yet in this story, I see a king that is truly and sincerely connected to God and praying before because when tragedy strikes, he hits his knees. And it's not alone, but he calls for the entire group of people, everyone. And what does he pray about? We continue. Verse 5. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem and in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, Everybody's there. O Lord God, our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might? So that no one is able to withstand you. Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your forever friend? And they dwell in it and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple and in your presence... For your name is in this temple, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now here are the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and did not destroy them. Here they are, rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. And then verse 12 is a golden verse. O our God, we will not judge them, for we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Now let's look at that prayer a little bit. Notice he doesn't speak of the problem first. He speaks of the power of God, of fulfilled promises along the way, remembering how He has delivered and guided in the past. Too often, I think, our prayer time is just kind of a rehearsal of our problems, And we fit them all in there and we just jump right in without first praising God and who he is, his power, his might, his faithfulness, for his love, his mercy, his grace, for his life, for his death, for his resurrection. As our creator, redeemer, sustainer, as our forever friend, there's so much we can praise him for. There's so much we can be thankful for, but we don't start out our prayers that way. We just go straight into, oh, Lord, you know this situation. You know these people. You know the person I just visited in the hospital. You know what the doctors have said. And we rehearse and we rehearse and we rehearse our problems over and over so much that when we get off of our knees, we feel worse than when we got on our knees. Is that the idea of prayer? And in those moments, are we not forgetting who we're praying to? The God of the universe that's all-powerful, that's mighty, and that's strong to save. And we forget that. We forget the awe and the reverence, the holy, holy, holy God that we pray to, and we just rehearse our problems and we feel more down than when we started. Jehoshaphat shows us a different way. He's claiming God's promises, his power, his strength. And he says, we have no idea what to do. We're clueless. How would you like your politician to do that? Well, with this ISIS group, we don't know. What's your plan? We don't have one. How should we move forward, leader? I don't know. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. I don't know about you, but I just love that. You know, if if we think about these things in our time, you would think that he would have brought together a private council. Maybe gone in his back closet and prayed. Maybe have brought together his advisors, if you will, some of the key people. But no, he doesn't do that. He throws open the doors of the palace. Everybody comes. Women, children, everybody. And he prays his prayer to everybody. He's not politicking. He's not posturing. He's not trying to pretend, oh, we have plan A and then we have plan B. He's not going to the decorated war generals and saying, fire up the F-16s, get out the armored vehicles, we're ready to go, and then, oh, by the way, let's pause. What a witness. We're going to pause and pray, Lord, you know how bad we need this. They're coming after us. We're only defending ourselves. Bless us, we pray. Amen. He doesn't take that approach, but throws open the doors to all the people, and together they petition the Lord. That's some pretty incredible humility, if you ask me. Before everyone, unashamedly, we're powerless. Not only that, we're clueless, but our eyes are on Him. We need to go back and pick up key number two, claim the promises of God. First thing you do is pray immediately. Secondly, claim the promises of God. One timely promise in your time of tragedy can be a lifeline. And you claim that promise over and over and over and over. Like a stair railing to a plane. You don't let it go. You hang on with all your might, with all your tenacity. Now, there might be some skeptics here today that say, well, of course, he would go that route. He doesn't have any other options. This guy isn't a man of faith. He's just desperate. I mean, when the atom bomb's dropping, what are you going to do? You're going to pray. But I beg to differ. Prophets and Kings, page 198, says this. For years, he'd been strengthening his armies and his fortified cities for years. And Sister White says, he was well prepared. This isn't that last minute prayer that you offer up because you haven't been able to study, you've lost your book, and this is the test you're either in or out of the program, and so you offer up this last ditch effort that this may work. Lord, please help me. This isn't that. She says he was well prepared to meet almost any foe. Yet in this crisis, he put not his trust in the arm of flesh. He could have been tempted to do something different. But he doesn't. And that brings us to key number three. His only refuge was in God and God alone. So we pick up the story in verse 13, now all Judah, with their little ones, their wives and their children, stood before the Lord. Here we have this picture of kind of helplessly waiting on the Lord. And then verse 14, then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, And he gives this message that we read in verse 15. The only place we see him mentioned in Scripture, but it's a message from the Lord. And he said, verse 15 Listen, all of you, Judah, and all of you, inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you, King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you Do not be afraid or dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours. But God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. They will surely come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Juriel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. That phrasing is almost identical to Moses and the Red Sea experience, and he tells them, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. We have mountains. We have people evading us. We have this water in front of us. There's no place for us to go. And God says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. You know, you can translate that same phrase as be quiet. Do you ever go into panic mode? Yeah, but they're coming, and then on this island, we don't have any place to go. And Moses, What are we going to do? Be quiet. Be still. Watch and see how the Lord will deliver. See the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. That was good news. Don't be afraid. Stand still. God can make a way when there is no way. Do you believe that? Amen. Again, there may be a doubting voice out there that says, well, that must be nice. You pray, prophet comes in, word of the Lord, you're going to be just fine. This cancer is going to be Benign. You're going to live a long and healthy life. Battle's not yours, it's the Lord's. Don't fear, don't be discouraged. You'll be fine. Must be nice. But can we not claim the same promises this morning? Sure, God doesn't cause tragedy in our life, but God allows it. And if I surrender everything to Him, It's his battle. And I too can stand still in faith and trust in the Lord, and I can know that the Lord is with me. True so far. And I know that God will bring it about for my salvation. I just don't know the timing of it. If I'm sick and I'm dying, I can know that it's God's will to heal me. I just don't know when. It may be immediately, it may be gradually over time, it may not be until the resurrection morning, but I can know that it is God's will to heal. And I can know that He has my best interest at heart. The battle belongs to the Lord. Therefore, I can choose by faith to not be afraid. I can choose by faith to not be dismayed. I can choose by faith to stand still and to be quiet. Trusting that the God that I know and love truly has my best interest at heart. Can't I do that? Ministry of Healing, page 489. I've read this to you all before, but it says, He who is imbued with the Spirit of Christ abides in Christ. Whatever comes to him comes comes from the Savior who surrounds him with his presence. Nothing can touch him or her except by the Lord's permission. I don't know about you, but to me that's good news, that nothing can touch me except for by God's permission. Now, he may not cause it. I believe the devil causes it, but he still allows it. And it continues on, all our suffering and sorrows, all our temptations and trials, how many? All. All of our sufferings and sorrows, all of our temptations and trials, all our sadness and griefs, all of our persecutions and privations, in short, all things work together for our good. All experiences and circumstances are God's workmen, whereby good is brought to us. Let that settle in. All of these terrible, horrible tragedies that come across your life and mine are God's workmen. He doesn't cause it, but he allows it. And if we allow, he will allow that to change us and transform us for our own good. To me, that's incredibly good news. Whatever messenger of Satan comes to me, whatever messenger of Satan comes to you, Here's the incredibly good news. God is going to use it as a tool, as a workman, to bring good to you. So we continue on the story. Verse 18. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. At the end of verse 19, it says, They stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with voices loud and high. And then we have the famous verse. Verse 20, at the end, it says, Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. Trust in the word from the Lord. Trust in the promises of God. Trust that he sees the end from the beginning. That his thoughts are above your thoughts and his ways are higher than your ways. That he will never leave you nor forsake you. That you are, in fact, the apple of his eye. So tragedy strikes. And what does Jehoshaphat do? He immediately prays, calls a prayer meeting. He claims the promises of God. He realizes his only refuge is God. And he trusts God and believes in his prophets. And lastly, he moves forward in faith. Notice what he does, verse 21 And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord. This is the choir. And who should praise the beauty of the holiness as they went out before the army? What's your war strategy, King? Well, we're going to get the choir, we're going to have them put on their robes, we're going to have them sing some of their best songs. They've been working on some really good ones that are inspiring, and they're going to be out in front of the tanks, in front of the armored vehicles, in front of everything else, and they're going to praise the Lord as we march forward in faith. The battle belongs to the Lord, and we don't want to forget that, so the choir goes first. Uh, Excuse me, King, this is not usual. No, it's not, but that's what we're going to do. Sir, yes, sir. And so they're saying, and praising the Lord, for His mercy endures forever. Verse 22, now when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. Verse 23, for the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly kill and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. So they start fighting each other. Verse 24, so when Judah came to a place overlooking the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and they were dead bodies fallen on the earth. No one had escaped. And so the choir is going out. Everybody's marching, and we're trusting the Lord. And we get to this spot, and I imagine everybody just goes quiet. And they look down in the valley, and not one has survived. This is not your battle to fight. The battle belongs to the Lord. And I imagine they're dumbfounded. How has this happened? God did it. He said he would do it, and he did it. It Takes them three days to recover all the loot. And then they go back praising God, and they go back to the temple, and they praise God. And then one of the last verses of this section here, verse 30, it says, "Then the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for God gave him rest all around. Rest. Friends, God can make a way when there is no way. He can do the unthinkable. Yes, the battle truly was the Lord's. But you may be thinking, does it always look that way? Does it always play out just like that? About six months ago, maybe it's a little more than that, it was about Christmas time. Our youngest, James, who was born June 25 of last year, he just kind of plateaued. And he stopped growing, and he stopped gaining weight, and his motor skills just kind of were on pause. And, you know, we've had other kids before, and some have been behind in this area, and some have been behind in that area, and, you know, you get some of that. And that's just kind of how it works, and it eventually works out, and everything is fine. Well, by spring we notice something is really not right here. He still has maintained that same level. He's still 16 pounds. His development really hasn't increased. He's still sleeping way too much. And he started doing this thing where he would throw up a lot of his nourishment. Sometimes he'd eat a nice, good breakfast, and then he'd lose it all. And so the process began. Many of you know what that process is like. Doctor, after doctor, after doctor, test, after test, and the emotional roller coaster that goes along with that. This doctor seems to think everything's okay, this one thinks it could be really bad. Well, we went to see a pediatric neurologist, and he did an MRI, and he did an EEG, that's where they hook his head up to about 50, 70, I don't know, wires, to see if. His brain waves are good. He has good brain waves, so they say. But the MRI showed an abnormality in the white matter, is that right? There's white matter and there's gray matter. To me, it's all just matter. <laughs> so that was a low. What does this abnormality in the, in the white matter mean? And if it's a brain issue, how do you really fix that? And then we went to our pediatrician, and she says, I can think of a lot of people off the top of my head who've, who've gotten that same report back, and they're fine. I can think of three right now. Oh, well, maybe that's nothing to be terribly concerned about. And then we went to see genetics next, and they drew more blood, and they were going to send that off to test for some 60 other things. And they said, we'll know the results in about two months. Okay? So in the meantime, as we're waiting, we go to see a gastroenterologist, if if I have that right, basically to study the the digestion and all those kinds of things. And He seemed to think that everything looked like it was going pretty well. Our our pediatrician along the way had prescribed something that was helping him not throw up, so he was able to get a little more calories. And by this time, he was starting to slowly gain a little bit of weight. And uh, so when we went to... The gastroenterologist, he said, well, you know, it may be that he just wasn't getting the calories he needed. Maybe it was affecting, he said that very well could affect his development, and now he'll be on the up and up, and, and he said, you know, I don't know how to really describe this, and he kind of went in circles for a little bit, trying to say in a nice way that wouldn't offend us, maybe you're just overprotective parents. Oh, that doesn't offend us at all. We'd be fine being overprotective parents. That means, yeah, that's good news. And then a week later, we got the genetics report back. That James has an extremely rare, um, oh, help me out, Elizabeth, variant, thank you. A very rare variant of Alexander disease. And they assured us he doesn't have Alexander disease, he has a variant of Alexander disease. Well, what does that mean? Well, if you look up Alexander disease, which they assured us he didn't have, it's pretty terrible. Uh, fatal usually within the first few years, Um, especially when they get it so young. And there's no treatment and there's no cure and you just kind of help them be as comfortable as possible as these myelin sheaths in the brain. You doctors can try and correct what I'm trying to say, but somehow there's some protein fibers that hold up some of the firing that happens in the brain. They start to deteriorate and it just kind of starts to fall apart. But he did, they said that he doesn't have Alexander disease. This is not a diagnosis. He has a variant. Now, Alexander disease only affects, there's only been 500 cases, I think, since it was discovered in 1949. But James's variant, there's only two other people in the history of the world that's ever had his variant. Talk about rare. I did the math one day. James would be 200,000 times more likely to be struck by lightning than to have this variant. So we look at the the case studies of the other two people that had this variant, and basically it's suspicious that he might develop Alexander disease, he might have a leukodystrophy, it might be fatal, but he might be just fine. We don't know. And we look at the other two cases, and, and those don't look too good, but James doesn't exhibit all the same symptoms as those two cases. Alexander's disease, you have a larger head, and there's uh, seizure activity, and he doesn't have those. And so what do we tell the church? Well, we don't have anything to tell the church. We don't have a diagnosis. We don't know. And that's where we are today. And so in the meantime, they say, we really are out of things to do. We just have to wait and see what happens. They've tested to see if Elizabeth and I have that same variant. Because that would be good news. We're semi normal. <laughs> so maybe he could be semi normal too. But we don't have it. And so that's the emotional roller coaster that we've been on. What does the future look like? How do we plan? I mean, at this point, James is still very much behind, he's still very much underweight. His development is is improving but very very slowly at this point he should be walking around and doing a lot more toddler things i give you a list but you put him next to another 15 month old and you see very quickly there's some some major differences there so some days we think he may be just fine he may be normal and we pray that he'll do some mighty thing for the lord and other days we think he's not normal he's just absolutely not normal And it comes down to some of these verses. Lord, we have no power over this. We don't know what to do. But our eyes are on you. And so we're going to pray. We're going to claim promises. We're going to trust in the fact that only you are our refuge and strength. And we fully trust you. Every day we give James over to the Lord and say, he's yours. And we move forward in faith. Now, some of you may be wondering, and we have an anointing service planned for him in about a week. Elizabeth's parents happen to be able to be here, and my parents can come up, and so we're going to have a private service at our house to just further place this in God's hands. But in the meantime, we just live every day. We enjoy the four beautiful children that he's given us. And we don't know how this will play out. Yes, we're talking about you, James. But our prayer at the core is God, we want whatever you want. We want this to bring honor and glory to your name, however you see fit, however it will bring you the most glory. Whether you heal him and he does great things for you, or whether you use him in this process to change us and maybe others around us, we trust you. And we're trying to look at the big scheme of things. I mean, think about eternity. We have this sliver of time. I asked some of the pathfinders this week, which would you rather have? A really bad stomachache. I mean, violent stomachache for two hours, but then after that, I'll give you $50 billion, or, you know, whatever you want. Oh, man, give me the stomach ache, right? Is it any different? Our, our, our life is this short. And we are told that when we can see the end from the beginning when God explains everything to us. We'll say, God, you were fair, you were just, you were true, and we wouldn't have wanted it any other way. I see how you use this and work through this for this and this and this and this. Thank you so much. And so we just have to keep trusting in the Lord. And please understand and know that I'm fully aware that there are very difficult situations in this congregation. There are some here this morning that I know are going through things that are far worse than what I'm describing. But be assured that God loves you, that He cares for you, and that God has already purchased your and my ultimate good on Calvary. And that he promises us, all of us, a better existence. And in light of eternity, this is nothing. This is a blink of an eye. That doesn't mean your pain doesn't, isn't real, that, that you don't feel pain, that you don't cry. You do. But by faith, you know that God is in control. Jesus, too, by faith. He knew he would rise again. He told his disciples that. But when the moment came, and he felt the burden of your sin and my sin upon his shoulders, three times we see Jesus begging God to take it away. This is too much. I can't do this. But not your will, but not my will, but yours be done and desire of ages tells us he could not see beyond the portals of the tomb think about that at that moment he only had faith to go on he could not see beyond it and he thought this is it for me I will be crushed my life will be snuffed out at this moment but at that very same moment he thought of each one of you even if it was just you and he said I would rather never live again than not have Sandy in heaven. To not have others of you in heaven. He said, I'd rather, not by will but yours be done. I'd rather cease to exist. That's a love that I can't understand. That I can't make sense of, but I can respond to. And I can say, Lord, I don't understand the situation I'm going through, but that's okay. Because I know you. And I know what you're like, and I trust you fully. You are my refuge and my strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, I will not fear. Even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, I will choose to be still and know that you are our God and my prayer is that you will be exalted above the nations that you will be extolled in the earth and you alone I trust so maybe there's some here that feel like you've just landed on that rear door of the plane and you're being sucked out I challenge you to hang on Hang on. Don't let go, because God will see you through. Dear Heavenly Father, we too want to follow the means that Jehoshaphat laid out for us. He was not perfect. He made his share of mistakes. But in this instance, he got it right. Lord, we want to pray and continue to lift up our situations to you each and every day. We want to continue to praise you for the incredible and vast blessings that you have poured out upon us and how our ultimate good is secure in Christ and how we have the hope of a better day. And how the creator of the universe can recreate our hearts and our bodies. We just praise you for all the good that that you encompass and that you are. And we also recognize that in this situation that we have come forward to just now, we don't know what to do. We are powerless, but our eyes are on you. You are our refuge. You are our strength. And so, Lord, we need that strength. We need your power. We need your peace to help us to move forward in faith. And so we vow to cling to you with all our might until that wonderful day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse